The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. I was never one to want to carry much equipment. In my 20s, I played softball, and I was okay with just a mitt and cleats. As a child, I sang in choirs and was grateful I didn't have to lug around a, a tuba or a violin. Of course, I wanted piano lessons, nothing to carry there. But we couldn't afford such things. So the fact that I had a decent enough voice to carry with in and through me, that was quite enough. Now I've taken up swimming, another activity I did briefly in my younger days, swimming in a pool to which I have access, and I am grateful and don't take the privilege for granted. The water's warm and clean, the lines on the bottom of the pool guide me when I swim freestyle, and the ceiling tile frames keep me centered in my lane when I do the backstroke. The equipment is light, something to keep my hair back, earplugs, because water in my ears make me, makes me dizzy and, and sore, and, and a nose clip mostly to remind me to breathe in a way that prevents me from taking in too much water. And oh yes, goggles. When the roof is retracted on a sunny day, it's blinding, and I prefer the backstroke to any other. My form needs a lot of work, I'm sure, but it's good enough backstroke. I'm not looking to compete. I get in the pool utterly unrecognizable, I'm sure, which is part of the joy of it, really. I feel anonymous in my own little world and away from all the chattering on the deck or in the locker room about politics, about current events, or events the chatterboxes are themselves about to do or have done or wish for or worry about. I'm away far, far away, and in my own narrow 25-yard lane. I keep count of laps, or I plan to anyway, not that I swim that many. I'm slow, over a minute each lap, a deliciously slow pace, and my mind wanders. I peer up at the clock. It's been four minutes already? Is that lap three or five I just finished? And I find myself thinking about Mari's reflection. I just read it before getting into the pool with that larger than her flower, that sunflower that amazed and frightened and how holding hands with her brothers helped her face this unknown, this unfamiliar. Of course, it's not just children who have fears of the unknown. Even the biggest, the baddest of us all feel fears sometimes. And in these times, we've all had times of dwelling in fear, in the who knows 
and the not yet, but, but when. In these times, it's a phrase that distinguishes now from other times. It suggests some context, a, a container, if you will, as if there is a cohesiveness about time and events. We are meaning seekers after all, we human beings. And putting this time, these times, in a phrase like that settles everything in a neat little box, as if life itself can be put in a neat little box, like, like a photograph in a well-constructed frame. But we can't. What's going on at any time is neither neat nor comprehensible, not really. And for the most hardcore of us meaning makers, that's a scary thing. What in the world makes sense? So much arbitrariness, so much contradiction. Lap seven? But there's something about making that turn at the end of a lap that disrupts my meandering mind. I don't turn neatly, cleanly, most turns. I have to focus so I don't clonk my head on the wall or turn too far to one side or the other of my lane and disturb the person in the next lane over. I love the peaceful glide once I do get turned around. And I fall into reverie. When I was in Yellowstone this summer, I sat on a bench while my intrepid Mary took the long walk down a rocky path to see a waterfall. Walking all that way down would have meant walking all that way up. And I wasn't up to it just then and preferred to sit and look across the gorge at a tremendous cliff, massive, textured with crevices and outcroppings where I imagined there might be oh, an occasional bird's nest, little critters and lichen making their way in those vertical spaces in the stone, those cracks. They look like color variations, like dividing lines, but they are cracks in the otherwise solid stone formed how many thousands of years ago? There must be something in the character of the rock and the power of the winds and rain over the years. And some of those cracks, there's a gap, no doubt, where light comes through and slight pockets, too, where soil fills in and wildflower seeds plant themselves, where flowers and things we call weeds grow. There are trees atop the cliff, hundreds in my viewing, I guess, maybe thousands behind those, a carpet of pine, and I don't know what other kinds of trees. I only see rough forms and a deep green. Trees, they nurture one another by their roots. These trees, they give shade and homes to harmless lizards and in ways they cannot protect themselves from, they host beetles that cause them harm. I hear the rapids below and the birds making music overhead, contrasting, contrapuntal, 
and I tap on the bench to add my improvisational layer, a thin thread that I imagine only I can hear so as not to disturb. And I feel very fortunate to be there in these times. My mental stress seeps out. I don't know much of anything about what I'm looking at, hearing, or smelling, sensing in any way, and it just doesn't matter. I'm blessed to be in even an ancillary role at best of this particular wild. Am I now a part of the wild, I wonder, tapping along as I am? What lap am I in now? At least I remember that going out from the locker room side is going to be an odd number lap and coming back toward it and even. Is it 17? And then I think again about Mari's reflection as I raise one arm up and over and through the water and then the next, fluttering my legs, glad to be working on making them strong again. It makes me glad for her, for little Mari, who felt comforted and safe and warm holding her brother's hands in the face of that towering over her sunflower, and for adult Mari, too, who has such a memory, what a gift that was and is for her, and I imagine for her brothers, too. What makes us feel safe? What helps us through our fears, little and large? We don't all have loving brothers, loving others. Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron tells us to welcome fear, to smile at fear, to say, hello. Welcome the feeling in, she says, befriend it. She wrote that we need to begin all of that by reaching out, reaching out to other people, to the people who come into our own lives, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, our community members, and we need to work on ourselves. I glide, glide, glide through the water in the pool. What am I afraid of? Of all the things I do not know, of all the things I cannot begin to know or control, even in the slightest. My son Seth, when he was about three, was helping me, as a three-year-old might, with a project outdoors. We both had on protective goggles, and I had an electric sander that he held with me, gliding it up and down a piece of wood as I showed him how to do it was then that he said, Mama, J.D., you know everything. I was so surprised. And even though I knew that much that it wasn't true, I felt a bit prideful because he seemed in that moment so proud of me, maybe a tiny bit in awe. It was 10 years later when in an argument he shouted at me, you don't know anything, and slammed the car door where I dropped him off. 
As much as that moment when he was three gave me a good feeling, this angry thunder felt many times that awful. But you know, that time, he was right. I didn't know anything. Nothing of the turmoil, the level of conflict he was experiencing at that time. I didn't know he needed more help than I was providing, more and maybe different good guidance. I wrote it off, thought of it as, well, teenage hormones doing their thing. I hadn't a clue. In time, my fears grew through his teen years, some well-founded fears about what he might be going through, what I might be able to do better to support him. And I questioned if I even could. Those times, those were the hardest and scariest for me. Are there parents listening today? Do you relate? I was afraid of my helplessness to make everything all right for him. You can know that you cannot make everything all right for your child, but you can still fret, wish that you could. Our children, our children do not belong to us. We know that. They belong to themselves. And once they reach a certain age, they are our advisees at best, not our wards. 23 laps, or is it 21 or 25? You know, in the water you can cry for whatever reason and no one sees, no one else knows. And when I do, and I do, my goggles get so I can't see clearly. And so I stop along the pool wall long enough to at least shake out the goggles and place them back on and continue. COVID-19 has brought with it to many, if not all of us, a fear not experienced otherwise in our lifetimes. Unlike the AIDS pandemic and HIV, the virus associated with it that is transmitted by blood, COVID-19 is airborne. When my beloved, and many of you know her, Mary Gans, when she started saying last spring, when will I get to see my grandchildren again? Or will I? When will I be able to hug them again? I don't know about you, but I had been caught up for a time with a sort of fatalism about COVID that maybe it was not a question of if, but when, but hearing my Mary's pain about our grandchildren, that was a turning point. We had a way to travel that was as safe as there is, a van, self-contained, a privilege to be sure, and one that frankly I was quite ready to take advantage of. I told fear, I told fear all right, I said hello, and I gave it a smile, and then I ordered it to take a back seat. We were heading east. We set out to go to Colorado first, see how that felt. Was it safe enough? And then go another few hundred miles and check again. 
not going in a straight line at all. We stopped to see family and friends only outdoors. And we stopped in parks, national, state, and town parks along the way. Another of Mary's dreams to visit as many parks, especially national parks, as we can in these later years. In the end, we had driven nearly 10,000 miles over 57 days, wending our way east and home again. We made it to the Grand Boys in Boston. And it felt a little like, if not having truly befriended fear, at least letting it travel with me, but not boss me. Not all the time, anyway. It's easier, I think, to go into fight mode for family. Is that true for you? When I do know how they suffer, that is. It's easier than to face my own deepest fears. 24 laps in 30 minutes, just keep going. No point to it, none grander than to just keep going. I know that when I get out and into the locker room, I'll hear more about politics and news of the day. When I get home, I'll open my computer and the news bulletins will pop up. Another wave of COVID pandemic across the globe, 20 years in Afghanistan, and the death and destruction that we've been a part of, a hurricane in Haiti with horrifying impact, conflict over masks in the schools, the California recall insanity, a rise in temperatures, a million 300,000 acres burned so far this season in California alone. And if I click on the link, I can learn more. It's not a sign of especially good character, I believe, to make oneself read all the articles, watch all the news broadcasts, and do, do, do without balance, without taking time to shut it all off and create healing space for oneself. It's not a sign of disinterest or selfishness to take care of one's mental health, one's emotional life, one's physical needs, health, and well-being. I can click on that info link later, and maybe I will, maybe, maybe. But for now, lap 30-something? It was a summer day in Tampico, Mexico, the sun was directly above and the sky was white hot. I remember walking between my two older brothers, Nacho, who must have been around nine years old at the time, and Beto, who was around seven. They held hands with me easily, the way that siblings from large extended families do. We were serene and quiet as we made our way along a seemingly endless dirt path that had been worn into the low-lying scrub. I was about four years old, and at my young age, I didn't wonder where the path led or even why we were on it. 
I was in that unfledged season of life before school bells and expectations could impose their order, and my days unfolded as easily as dreams. As far as I was concerned, the rhythmic scraping of our child-sized footsteps on the dry path was as much a part of its unfolding as its presence was in animating our course. It was enough for me to walk hand in hand with my brothers and to take in the day. We'd been walking for a while when we saw a patch of wild sunflowers growing in an unruly cluster a short distance away. Their presence in the dry landscape seemed peculiar. Even from our vantage point, we could tell that they were taller than us by several feet, and their wild coarseness startled me. They were standing next to the path, giving off a weirdly pugnacious energy, almost as if they were a pack. My brothers must have felt the same unease that I did because they began to slow their pace. We would have veered off, we would have had to veer off the track and work our way through the scruffy, sticker-covered terrain in order to avoid them, so we inched our way forward haltingly like restive kittens. When we finally reached the sunflowers, the three of us froze in amazement. One sunflower towered above the rest. I remember her face. Yes, the sunflower's face. Her head, big and heavy as a cast iron pan, sat atop an abrasive gray-green stalk that was as thick as a small tree trunk. Her scraggly, flame-colored petals didn't reflect light so much as claim it. And her face, that amazing, terrible face, it was an otherworldly cluster of dull raised bumps and confusing holes with gnats buzzing and crawling in it, and there were no familiar features for my eyes to land on. It, it made me dizzy. I never imagined that something so dreadful could share my world, yet there she was. We could feel the force of her substantial spirit. It's what had stopped us in our tracks. She loomed over us, and the giant sunflower made no effort to soften her countenance on account of our tender age. In her raw determination to prevail over the parched landscape, she had no time for us. All my brothers and I could do was stand there, eyes and mouths wide open, and witness her. Her ferocity hit me like a tempest. It slammed me with a profound sense of awe. The universe seemed to burst open, shattering the cocoon of my childhood, leaving me feeling untethered. And for the first time, I sensed I could be lost. And I understood that my brothers were a miracle, that in the casual gesture of their little hands reaching out to hold mine, there was an act of grace so powerful that it was capable 
of resisting the pull of the entire voracious universe. A mystery capable of saving me, of grounding us in love. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.